Welcome to Eczema Breakthroughs, brought to you by Global Parents for Eczema Research, or Cheaper. This show features conversations between parents of children with eczema and the world's leading scientists and researchers who study eczema. Global Parents for Eczema Research is an international network of parents that advocates for better treatments and management options for children with eczema. Jeeper is led and comprised of parents of children with eczema and was formed in 2015 to address the critical need for research that answers questions of importance to patients and families. Learn more about Jeeper and subscribe to the Eczema Breakthrough Podcast at parentsforeczemaresearch.org. Welcome, everybody. I'm Corey with Global Parents for Eczema Research, and super glad to have you here today on another uh, episode of our podcast, Eczema Breakthroughs. Before we get started, and we have a really exciting guest today, I wanted to give a, a quick plug for a free program that we're offering right now to parents and caregivers of children with eczema anywhere in the world. It's a peer support program to help with the challenges and stress of caregiving. It's, as I said, open to anyone, anywhere, and we're also offering a nice care package for people who sign up, and you can find out more on our webpage at parentsforexmaresearch.org slash caregiver. So with that, let's go ahead and get started. I'm happy to introduce uh, our guest today, Dr. Sue Ng. Dr. Ng is a professor at the Department of Medicine and Therapeutics and associate director of the Center for Gut Microbiota Research at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. She studies the role of gut microbiota in health and disease and is exploring how fecal microbiota transplantation can address a number of conditions, including atopic conditions like eczema. She's published over 150 peer-reviewed journal articles in top journals like Nature and The Lancet. She received her medical degree from St. Bartholomew and Royal London School of Medicine and her PhD from Imperial College London. So Dr. Ng, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Corey, for having me. Fantastic. So we've been talking about wanting to do a podcast on this topic for quite some time, maybe even a couple years. And we've been watching, hopefully, as the science has evolved. And we've seen the promise of fecal microbiome transplants to treat immune system mediated conditions sort of unfolding. So it's something that we're really eager to learn more about, especially as we start to really search for a cure for some of these conditions. But before we get into that, I wanted to actually back up and ask you some more basic questions because what you study is really cutting edge. And I'm not sure everyone realizes that there's an interaction between the environment in our gut and the immune system, that the immune system sort of resides in our gut and interacts with all of the microbes that live there. So I wondered if you could explain perhaps in like a more fundamental way, why would the composition of the microbes in our gut and by microbes, I mean bacteria and fungi and viruses and things like that. Why would that play a role in atopic conditions like eczema? And how does our gut microbiome interact with our immune system there? Right. I mean, I think you're absolutely right that this is such an exciting field because each of us has like 40 you know, um, trillions of bacteria, fungi, and viruses. And they actually mostly reside within our gut. And it turns out that they don't only help to control diseases in the gut, but other organs outside the gut, for example, the brain, like in autism or depression, 
for example, cardiovascular or heart diseases, and even metabolic disease like obesity. And of course, allergy uh, is one of the key features that has now been featured to have an imbalanced gut microbiota. The question is why suddenly the gut microbiota can affect something like our skin and other different organs. The hygiene hypothesis suggests that with modern living, we are really in some ways wiping out some of the good bacteria in our gut through um, antibiotics, through poor diet, or even to destroying some of the parasites that's supposed to be helpful to build our immune system. And this is important because it actually starts early on in life, because when we are born, we are probably sterile, but we acquire our gut microbes from our mother as where they were born. And that actually helps to prime our system in order to provide us to fight subsequent infections. So this is probably the reason why we now understand our gut microbes play such a key feature in early life, priming our immune cells and also to prevent us from having different diseases later on in life. That's great. And I also just wanted to spell out the hygiene hypothesis in case any of our listeners aren't familiar with that. But it's this idea that our environments have become too clean and that in the past we used to have you know, dirtier environments. We lived closer to things like livestock and animals. Maybe we worked in the soil and we just had more interaction with the microbes around us. But in modern life, you know, we're in our apartments, we're using hand sanitizer all the time. And the effect is that we just don't have those beneficial microbes in our life in the way that we used to, as well as things like parasites and worms. And this is causing the um, immune system to go haywire a little bit because it, it doesn't have those microbes that it's used to having in its orbit. Is, is, would you say that's right, Dr. Ng? Yes, yes. And I'd just like to supplement one of the um, studies that we conducted. We found that having pets or exposure to pets during childhood, like uh, dogs and cats and kittens and all this, uh, or living near a farm, or like you said, exposure to uh, livestock and farm animals, actually was a protective mechanism for, for example, allergic disorders and eczema and inflammatory bowel disease. So in, in some way, it actually supports that these are some of the um, things that um, could actually give us some of these beneficial um, um, parasites to exposure. Right. And like you said, there's also the overuse of antibiotics, especially in early childhood. And so... Like, what is happening in the gut? I, I mean, I guess in a very basic way, like, are these microbes communicating with the immune system and signaling it to overreact in some way in the case of allergic diseases? Like, what is the process happening in the gut that leads to something like an atopic condition? What is the, the communication going on? Yes. So in simple things, when in early life we are exposed to a set of, for example, beneficial microbes, then they shift our immune system to what we call Th1. So there are two parts, Th1 and 2. This system is very well balanced to keep each one of us healthy. But when the gut microbes, for example, shift the system to a Th2 and tell all the Th2 cells to become activated, then what happens is that you have an imbalance in this immune system. Then the immune cells will start producing what we call pro-inflammatory cytokines, 
or certain bad markers in the blood or the skin that will stimulate an allergic reaction leading to, for example, atopic dermatitis. So there are many signaling processes inside our gut, to our brain, to our skin, to our immune cells that are cross-talking. So this is what we call like the gut-brain axis, the gut-skin axis. Yeah, it's fascinating. Well, thank you for that sort of primer on, on what's going on. And it sounds like there's this early life signaling that tells our immune system how to adapt, which then in turn um, has consequences for health and disease over time. I wanted to ask specifically about uh, fecal microbiota transplant. Can you explain how it works and where do you get the the fecal microbiota that you would transplant and how is it um, administered to somebody and how long is the benefit? What happens um, after somebody is given this type of therapy? Right. So in fact, it's an ancient treatment. Actually, 2000 years ago, it started in ancient China, whereby they actually uh, transfer fecal material. And in those ages, it's not very civilized. So it's actually by mouth in order to treat food poisoning and in order in the World War II to treat people with infections in the gut, actually. And, and I think this um, not-so-new technology became apparent again in 2013, whereby a landmark study showed that if you take the fecal material from a healthy donor and you transfer it, for example, through endoscopy into people with a life-threatening conditions called clostridium difficile infections, it actually leads to a cure of 90%, pretty miraculous. And for that condition, within six to eight hours, you can actually see a response. And I think since then, um, what has happened is FMT has been trialed in many conditions. And I think on the top of the list, for example, are inflammatory bowel conditions, uh, even autism, which you've done, some autoimmune conditions, and of course, atopic dermatitis and eczema. Now, what we do, for example, here at the Chinese University of Hong Kong is we actually have a stool bank. So we, we screen our healthy donors. These healthy donors are people we recruit from the community. And it's, the screening process is even more strict than for blood transfusion, actually, because safety is very important. Now, if this healthy donor pass all the blood tests, the history tests, and all the infectious screening, then they will donate material and they process it and store it. Then we use the endoscopy route to um, administer this fetal um, material. I think for how it works, this is the tricky part. I think the answer is actually we don't really understand the mechanism behind it. But what we know so far is that if you take a whole set of new bacteria, the trillions and trillions of it, and transfer it to a diseased person, what you can do is probably increase the diversity of this bacteria and also, for example, boost up that good function in order to treat um, different conditions. I mean, I have so many questions. I want to make sure we get to some of the others. But like one question I have is, how does one go about cultivating a healthy gut microbiome, given that we all live in the modern world? Like, do we know how somebody ends up with a, health, a really healthy gut microbiome? Is it 
largely through diet or, you know, should we be looking for, for example, donors from rural areas that haven't had hyper sanitized environments or do we just not really know? Fantastic question, Corey. Um, I think that the first part is for any individual how to cultivate a healthy gut microbiome. I think early life is very important. Like the first few years of life is the golden opportunity because at those times you are most amenable to change. So children's gut microbiome are very different and they are very easy to change. If you give a set of antibiotics, they may wipe out all the good bacteria. So um, we need to do less harm to our gut microbiome, okay? So a few things in diet is emergently important, like food additives, emulsifiers. These are things that are being added to food. As in the last few months, actually, there's a boom of literature in how these uh, food additives, like carboxylicocellulose or PAT, very abundant in all the lovely food that we eat every day, actually can cause inflammation in the gut and even subsequently autoimmune disease. So I would say you can still have your, your ice cream, your nice cake once in a while, but if this is what you live on daily, then it may do some harm to your microbiome over a period of time. Then the second part is how do we find the what we call best donors? In fact, there are some theories about super donors. What we're doing is actually we are studying the rural microbiome as well in different parts of China. Hmm. And we found that people who are in the rural China who um, pretty much survived on uh, leaves, plants, high-fiber diet have a very different set of microbiome that are very beneficial. So I believe that in the future, we probably will be selecting donor based on their profile, actually, to treat um, certain diseases like um, eczema or obesity. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I, I think of my sister who's been a vegetarian her whole life and is so uh, careful about eating organic food and her entire diet is vegetables and fruits. And I'm thinking she needs to bank her microbiome, her gut microbiome, you know, and because we may not have access to great microbiomes in the future, um, given the way things are going. I mean, you start to think on strange lines, I think, when you have this conversation. Um, <laughs> we are wiping out our ancestors' microbiome because our ancestor gives us certain diversity and good microbiome. And through generations, the sort of pollution, the urbanization, and there's this fantastic study showing that when migrants, for example, migrate to the United States, right. actually the, the, the first generation actually become obese and develop inflammatory disease and autoimmune disease, not the actual migrants, but the first generation. And that's because they are born with the American <laughs> lifestyle and the urbanized. But then what happens is the second generation is even worse because following that, you, you actually, and they tap into the gut microbiome of these individuals and they see that actually through generations, we are actually missing all the good ones from, from what we're supposed to have from our ancestors. So I think over time, this will be an issue in the um, rising incidence of autoimmune conditions, immunological conditions, as well as like type 1 diabetes, autism, eczema, and things like that. Yeah, it's like we need a microbiome conservation effort or something like that. I want to get to a question here from Alexis, because it's an interesting one. 
earlier, you were talking about some of these steps that could be taken to reduce eczema in kids like um, vaginal delivery and being breastfed and no antibiotics. Can you offer any insight into the explosion of eczema that we're seeing, especially in kids that didn't or that checked all those boxes? You know, they were vaginally delivered, no antibiotics, always nursed. And yet at three months, you know, boom, eczema. Is it just a bad generation of mother's guts being passed down that were ruined? (laughs) And now (laughs) I I actually don't don't think so. I I think um, with any of these uh, diseases, there are probably some what we call genetic component, but I think for eczema probably it's quite small. I think it's the environment actually. So you're right, there are always a group that has done all the right things. Uh, why they, they still actually have eczema. I, I think the short answer is the, the cause for that, we, we don't really know. But I think if they have it, I personally believe that that's in some ways good news. That means probably there's something in the environment that you can probably modify even more actually to reduce some of these um, um, symptoms. So diet, I would say that actually one could actually think of a certain very strict diet whether you can reset the gut microbiome actually to prevent them from getting worse. I think this is where the environment, you can do something in terms of diet to actually prime them for um, later on to have more relief so they don't need to rely on medical therapy for, for these um, subjects. Thank you. Yeah, I, I appreciate those questions, Alexis, because they're very practical. And I think that's what our parents want to know is what did I do and what can I change? Yes. Um, uh, Definitely not the parents' fault. <laughs> you already done the right thing, passing the gut and um, um, my farm. And I think the things that can be done would be things that we can modify actually in terms of lifestyle at, at the moment. And some of this is just a, you know, it's a symptom of, changes in, in how we live. We exist in a context that's changed. So it's, it may very well not be anything that we personally have control over besides maybe antibiotics or C-section. Absolutely. And, and I think uh, what we need now is we need better treatment, we need safer treatment, and we need natural treatment. I think for this, for example, with gut microbiome transplantation, if you can reset that and change it, then you can completely, I think, lessen the, the symptoms. So there's quite a lot, a lot of hope because the natural, the conventional ways may not be actually what all the parents um, wanted to do to go down. They want to reset the whole system. Yeah, I love how you said that, a reset, because it's like, let's back up and, and do this over again for these kids. You know, let's get it right. Give them a chance to to have it go a different way from the beginning. In the world of eczema, which is what we know, um, our group is founded and run by parents of children with eczema, and we closely follow the research in our area. We have been really hopefully following the research on probiotics, so taking probiotic supplements and applying probiotics to the skin as well, topically. But the results have been really mixed. And so I guess I, I wanted to understand better from you, why isn't probiotic supplementation to the gut successful in in treating uh, a a condition like eczema, whereas fecal microbiome transplant might be more successful? Is it perhaps that we need that full party of microbes (laughs) involved rather than just a few strains? Yes. So if you look at the studies for probiotics for any conditions, I mean, including the topics of dermatitis, 
it's it's very conflicting. There's some bacterial species that have shown some um, benefit, but others um, have not. I think there are a few reasons um, for, for that. I think, first of all, for the probiotics to really work, I think it really needs to, in some way, colonize the, the gut, actually. And we hardly know of many of the commercial ones, whether they're scientific backup or studies being conducted to, to, to show that actually these bacteria really get to the gut and have a function like stimulate the good immune response, just as what it's supposed to do, actually. So the robustness is one of the um, issues leading to the variation we're seeing. And the second thing is we, at the moment, I think can't be sure about which exact bacteria is beneficial um, and the strains, the type, the doses that should be taken. And I suspect that it actually probably lead to certain temporary colonization. So you may need larger doses to take it for a long period of time. So those are all the uncertainties and we haven't had good studies to show that. Uh, in contrast, I think the difference with FMT is it's like changing the whole gut ecology. You are actually switching that one set of um, gut bacteria for another set that's meant to be healthy. So you have a chance to rebuild the immune function in a larger sort of managed magnitude. And not only that, because FMT leads to maybe transfer of trillions of bacteria, but these bacteria actually produces what we call metabolites. So the breakdown products are the short-chain fatty acids, and they are the ones that have been shown to relieve inflammation. That is very helpful. I think it also makes sense that we're not at the stage of being able to select for a specific strain of something, whereas when we uh, do a fecal microbiome transplant, everything's coming over <laughs> that might be of, be of benefit. And so we don't sort of need to know what's doing what, as long as there's a mix in there that's helpful. I wanted to pose a question by a parent on the line. Armando in California asked, any thoughts on using FMT for peanut or other food allergies? Uh, this is a very important question because peanut and other food allergies are so uncommon. And we started some animal works, actually mice works in this, and we've been using um, we have some collaborators using FMT um, to treat to see whether it actually helps for peanut or food allergies. And um, I'm quite delighted to say our early results were quite promising, actually. So, of course, these are preclinical studies. So I think the next step we need to do is um, safety and pilot study in these um, individuals. The other um, issue that's quite important is the timing of when to do that. Because as I said earlier on, early life is when you can most likely modulate it easily. And uh, whether uh, one uh, dose of FMT can actually prevent or cure that. I think that would be very important. But for other conditions like obesity and diabetes, which we now are conducting studies, we find that these individuals probably need several doses of the fecal microbiome transplantation in order to see an effect. So if we can modulate it early on in life, we may not need to need something to keep going and maintaining. Because the issue with probiotics is you might need to take it for a long time and you hardly know how long to take it for. And we hope that if we can have a treatment whereby we can do something to switch the gut microbiome to a beneficial one and do some prevention for further symptoms, then I suppose that would be a great breakthrough in the treatment of the hepatitis. Okay. 
I've got a couple more questions coming here and I want to make sure they get answered. You know, as parents of children with moderate to severe eczema, and I'm sure it's with, you know, a lot, a lot of our parents also are dealing with food allergy, even serious food allergy. We want to know <laughs> what do we need to do? How could we use this approach to help our kids basically? And I know that we're maybe not there yet with fecal microbiome transplant because the studies haven't been done for eczema and they're just starting for food allergy. So we're, we're ways off on that. And usually it starts with adults and then it comes down to kids. So, so it's going to be a little while, but you know, hopefully things are moving quickly, but Alexis asks, what can we do early in life um, right now? Like, do we have any strategies that we can implement to address the, the gut microbiome short of FMT? Uh, yes, I mean, I think in pregnancy, we know that it's actually pretty important as well. And doing so, two key things is that um, the mode of birth delivery actually influences the gut microbiome of the children and also whether they develop atopic dermatitis or eczema. So, as a method of prevention, we know that spontaneous vaginal delivery is uh, better than cesarean section because when you have cesarean section, you're exposed to the skin microbiome, the environment from the nurse's hands, and the um, where the operating theater is. This is the microbiome you acquire. Whereas with the vaginal delivery, they acquire the gut microbiome of the mother that is meant to be beneficial. So that's the first step. And the second step is there's a big contrast in breastfed as well as in formula fat children. And we did some work and we found that breastfed kids for up to 12 months actually uh, have less um, incidence of allergies, immune-mediated diseases as well. So I think that is the second um, factor. And avoid antibiotics if you can. I think when we did a study, we found children below the age of five, their urine and their stool, they've been given too much antibiotics for flus and for virus infection and for colds. So unless it's a bacterial infection, we should try to avoid multiple courses of um, antibiotics. Then diet-wise, I believe the right diet, so there are a lot of certain food that has a lot of um, good um, bacteria. We, we now know, for example, certain vegetables, um, for example, asparagus, certain fermented food and um, yogurt, um, uh, kumcha, all the different types of um, food actually has prebiotic that are good uh, for our gut microbiome. And high fiber, of course, is also important because a lot of bacteria lives on, um, on fiber. A reduction of what I said earlier on processed food, fast food, <laughs> which we all love, of course, and also food with food additives. I think with this combination and the diversity and the dietitian always said you need maybe five different colors of vegetables that actually gives you different types of ingredients. Now, as you go through later on in life, there's now also things and um, studies showing sedentary lifestyle, even in children, are uh, not so good for your gut bacteria. So if you have more physical activity, they actually change your gut bacteria profile to a more healthy state as well and uh, can be related to less um, cognitive or, or autoimmune conditions. That's really helpful and, and practical. And I'm feeling really guilty about the In-N-Out burger I ate a couple of days ago, <laughs> um, unfortunately. But it, it's interesting that being less active and, and eating poorly influence your gut microbiome in the context of this year that we've just had with the pandemic where we are all kind of at home on the couch. We'll see that in 10 years time, Corey, if you have this conversation again, I think this is a prediction. I suspect we're going to see an increase in uh, certain diseases like autoimmune conditions, family conditions, 
and even allergic conditions because of what this pandemic in some ways have actually changed a lot of the lifestyle. But uh, that's food for thought. <laughs> yeah, I know it's fascinating. This question stems from our knowledge about eczema, which is it's so different from person to person. And it seems so complicated and difficult to tease out, both in terms of what causes it and how it manifests. But I wondered if the human gut microbiome is also that way. Um, that does it have a unique fingerprint from person to person? And then ultimately, does a FMT approach need to sort of recognize that? So, you know, in the future, perhaps it would be necessary to have a tailored fecal microbiome transplant to the deficits in, that are apparent in each person. Yes, so our gut microbiome is very unique, actually. It's exactly just like our fingerprint. So if I were to check your gut microbiome, which actually we, we now are doing in Hong Kong, we have sort of studies testing people's gut microbiome to see what they are missing or sort of lacking. Uh, you find that it's, it's just like your fingerprint. It's unique to you. What's fascinating is, for example, people who live in the same household, their gut microbiome will be more um, Similar. So even you and your spouse, you and your children, you and your you know, helper, whoever are living in the same household, has more similar gut microbiome relating to environmental um, so um, exposure. So there are two things that affect this fingerprint. One is the innate, what we actually acquire, for example, from our mother, but more importantly is nurture what the surrounding actually molded um, to become um, over time. Uh, so uh, if you want to think about using a fecal microbiota transplantation, I personally believe that we, we need to tailor for conditions like um, eczema. I believe there's a variation because the variation of severity, there's a variation of the type of you know, presentation. So in this scenario, we have some early data showing that when you choose the type of donor, that is matched to the recipient of the person whereby they have specific missing gut microbes and the function of those microbes, it actually leads to better success. So our job now is to identify how to find the right donor for the right you know, patient with eczema to match, to give them the highest success and the least you know, um, treatment, maybe just a one or two times treatment and you can actually reset that. And I believe this view is merging. So over time, we will be able to find uh, the donor that has the right bacteria, fungi, yeast, or virus in their microbiome that works well for one other such person. Yeah, that makes total sense. And I'm looking forward to that future for sure. So I wanted to ask two related questions. One is that there was a recent paper in the journal Nature that found that in mice, so not in humans, fecal microbiome transplant was associated with restoration of the gut uh, microbiota and immune system balance. And it also reduced at the same time eczema-associated allergic responses. And so that paper, which just came out this year, gives us a lot of hope that this type of approach might lead to a safe, long-lasting therapy that could even cure childhood eczema. So I wanted to you know, ask you about that paper and wonder a little bit about what might be the timeline for a therapy for eczema. Yes. So um, I think the study published in the nature really uh, will excite and stimulate this view. It's a very intriguing study. And, and this is a proof of concept study, 
proving that, look, I mean, in a mouse model who have eczema, atopic dermatitis, when we transfer from a donor, which is, for example, a healthy mice gut microbiome to this um, allergic mice, they, they do a few things, actually. They do a few things in that they actually restore a good bacteria, similar to the donor bacteria. They increase what I call the metabolite, short-chain fatty acids, which restore the so-called Th1 and Th2 balance, which is what we need in order to um, reduce symptoms. And then it also can suppress some of the allergic responses related to atopic dermatitis. So the beauty about the study is not only showing the FMTs work, but why it works, what's the reason and the mechanism behind helping um, you know, the symptoms of um, atopic dermatitis. So I believe this really has set the stage now. So what we need actually, for example, in the States, they need clinical studies. We need clinical studies, pilot study for its one place two, to show that actually, I, I, I personally believe that if we do this sort of clinical studies, it actually is going to have a, a efficacy effect. We're going to see a, a, a response because it's very difficult to treat condition. Parents don't really want to have to rely on oral steroids and skin steroids because that will thin the skin and in children we can retard the growth of kids, cause bone problems and diabetes and or not making them grow so fat with just steroids. The harm is too much if we need to use prolonged steroids. Whereas if FMT can be trialed in clinical studies and shown to be safe in this um, children, um, I, it will be a, a, a big leap, I think, in the treatment um, paradigm of, of um of um, atomic dermatitis of that. And what we are doing right now is uh, we are actually doing studies in this regard for axonal. So we, are, we know that uh, 15 to 30% of um, children will develop axonal, actually, and about 10 to 20% of adults will have it. So working with our pediatrician, uh, by the age of about 12 months to three years, up to about 30% will at least have eczema. So we are doing an early life study. We are following these kids from birth to find out what are the biomarkers in the microbiome that can predict the ones that can have eczema. Then if the ones who develop eczema, then we're going to model it through a few things. Specific targets, what we call probiotics, they are targeted to help the eczema. And secondly, a group that receives FMT. Because we want to know which works better and how many doses of FMT you need to you need to give. So I hope that the global community, for example, the scientists and even in the states, that many more clinical trials can be tested in this um, in this very prevalent and debilitating condition. That's great, <clears throat> and I think one of the the things that we hear consistently from parents of children with moderate to severe eczema is they want to treat the root of the problem. And so just addressing the symptoms with the cream or a topical doesn't always address why the eczema appeared in the first place or, or what's going on with the immune system to cause it to come and go. So I think there's a lot of eagerness in our community to to pursue this and, and to see uh, a therapy become available to families and kids because otherwise you're just in the cycle of chasing the eczema all the time with something and never really getting at, I think, the underlying cause. And I think getting to the root of it would then prevent the episodes from happening more you know, regularly or even actually stop it completely. Yeah, that, that, that would be amazing. And thank you for the research that you're doing in this area. It's, it's so exciting. And I think we'll be watching it really, really closely and, and doing anything that we can to, to help 
accelerate it and bring it along. So I, I wanted to thank you so much for being a guest on our show today. I think we could probably talk maybe two or three hours about this. It's fascinating. Please join me in thanking Dr. Ong uh, for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you very much, Ari. Thank right. you for all the information. Thank you all, Ari, and thank you for all the, all the questions. You've been listening to the Eczema Breakthrough Podcast. To learn more and join Global Parents for Eczema Research, or to subscribe to this podcast, please visit us at parentsforeczemaresearch.org. And if you enjoy our podcast, consider supporting it with a tax-deductible donation through our website. We depend on listeners like you to keep producing high-quality, science-based episodes. Thank you, and we'll see you next time on the Eczema Breakthrough Podcast. Breakthrough Podcast.